We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 4 tonight. As you're turning to that, let me pray for us. Lord God, we praise you and we thank you for your word. God, we ask that you would show us wonderful things in your word tonight. God, uh, deepen our belief in you through the hearing of it, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We've likely all done it in some way, shape, or form, or at least we've seen it done. Taking a verse out of context, applying it in ways that they are not intended. Could be an NBA player writing, I can do all things on his shoes before every game, with the underlying assumption that the all things has to do with his performance on the court. It could just be a person on the street letting you know that the Bible says, you shall not judge. And the list could go on and on. As a local church, we're really blessed to have a diet of expositional preaching that helps us to refrain from taking verses out of context and to see how knowing, experiencing, and living are all interconnected. Theologian Michael Horton has a helpful way of doing this that he describes in terms of four Ds, drama, doctrine, doxology, and discipleship. Before getting into our text, these terms need a bit of explanation since they're going to serve as our outline for this evening. The biblical drama is the text of the scripture that reveals to us what God is like as history unfolds, from creation to fall to exodus to redemption and on to the new creation. It's from this drama, with Christ as the central character, that we are given doctrines, For example, God teaches us that he has acted wise, just, and mercifully because he is wise, just, and merciful. Doctrine isn't abstract or irrelevant. It tells us what the drama means for us. This doctrine that's rooted in the drama leads us into doxology, which simply just means praise. In worship, these great truths grab our hearts. They draw us into the story it becomes impossible for us to keep them merely as some truth to be known or some gripping story. All of this then works itself out in the fruit of love and good works, discipleship. We get turned outside of ourselves. We look up to God in faith and out to our neighbors in love. So let's get into Zechariah and see how these four Ds help us make sense of this text and help us to keep from having it simply as a slogan on our basketball shoes. Zechariah 4.6 Then he said to me, This is the word of God to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So first, the drama. In the unfolding story of redemption, the book of Zechariah finds God's people experiencing life that falls short of expectations. Exiles have returned to Jerusalem with hopes of seeing the restoration of the nation along with God's glorious kingdom. We find in Haggai and Ezra that their hopes have been dashed by failing crops, financial woes, opposition from enemies, infighting, and low morale. As a result of these struggles, the frustrated exiles have fallen into pessimism and apathy. This is the situation that Zechariah is prophesying into. The book of Zechariah starts with, um, with him reminding the people of the Lord's promises to establish his kingdom and calling them to return to God. 
They needed to hear God's promises again, don't we all? And calling, and, um, and these reminders come in the form of eight different visions that Zechariah is given. The visions promise the restoration of Jerusalem and also the temple, the overthrowing of hostile nations, the removing of sin in his people, his pledge to return to be with his people, and the promise of a future Davidic king, often called the branch prophecies. So that sets the stage for us to look at the immediate context that we find for our verse. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 4 to get us closer to the immediate circumstances around our verse. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke, woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. There are two olive trees by it, one by the right of the bowl, and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. So here we are in the middle of a vision of a gold menorah that's filled with oil directly from two olive trees. Instead of, instead of through the work of the priests, as Zechariah would come to expect. He's confused, and as a result, his first response, and sorry, he is confused, and as a first response to his confusion, the angel replies with our verse. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel, the leader, charged with rebuilding the temple, was the appointed governor of Judah. He was from the line of David, and therefore was qualified to build the temple. So that brings us up to speed with the drama, and we could walk away knowing a little bit more about the story, maybe, than we did before. But the knowledge of the story is just knowledge, unless it leads us to a better understanding of who God is, and what he is like, and what that has to do with Christ, the central character of the drama. So this brings us to our second point, the doctrine. The primary focus of this verse is that the power of God is sufficient. Zerubbabel was told he would not, it would not be of his own might or strength that this mission would be finished. He was told that it wouldn't be power, through power, which I think that could be taken as the authority from others, such as Darius, the current Persian emperor. Instead, the place where God would meet with his people would be built by his own providence, authority, power, and zeal. From the immediate context of the vision to Zechariah, we see that the lampstands are being filled directly from the olive trees. 
The NIV translates this ver- verse two as saying, I see a gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. God has no need of priests to pour oil into the lamps. It's God himself who works to supply what he commanded for his temple. This lampstand, fully supplied, kept by God, symbolizes the service and witness of God's people. Like the church lampstand in Revelation 1, the lampstand showed God's glory. God's temple will be built by God's spirit to display God's glory. It's not by might, it's not by power, but by God's spirit that his dwelling place with man would be built. God promises to do the same with his church. In Matthew 16, Peter, Jesus tells Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This statement reflects the fulfillment of the prophecy that we le- read later in Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. It is Christ who builds the church, and fits us together like living stones, building us up as a spiritual house, 1 Peter 2. It is Jesus who makes us no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It's in him that we are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's Ephesians 2, 19 and 21. It's Christ who sustains us individually as well as building us corporately. There isn't time to go down this trail very far as much as it would bless us to do so. Just a few verses to remind us of these truths. John 1.13 reminds us that we are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 1 Peter 1.23 helps us to remember that we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Romans 9.15 and 16 tell us that God's mercy and compassion to us depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Christian, rest in this doctrine, is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 He will build his church. He will sustain you. He knows you, down to the numbering of the hairs on your head. We have nothing to fear. His power is sufficient. So the drama of this scripture brings us to this great doctrine of the work of Christ in our lives. How should we respond? With praise. Our third D, the doxology. In Zechariah 4, 7, we see shouts of praise. And he shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. In verse 10, we see rejoicing. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The people of Zechariah's vision rejoiced to see the work of God. 
They praised him because they saw that God was keeping his promise to them and the place that um, he would meet with them, cover their sins, and redeem them was being built. The work of God should bring us to worship him. This is true in all the ways we see God work. But in the drama of this passage, it's specifically that God is going to build his dwelling place. This brings to mind the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, after discussing God's work of foreknowledge, predestination, justification, and glorification. He breaks out with a chorus of praise. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In 1 Timothy 1, directly following a statement on how Jesus came into the world to save sinners and display his patience on those who would believe, Paul again responds with praise. To the king of, king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen indeed. I could go on with more examples of how it's fitting and right to respond in worship to the work of God. But I need to move on and look at our final D, discipleship. The fruit of doxology is love and good works. Because of what Christ has done, we go about the work of evangelizing, as well as instructing, encouraging, and providing an example for others to believe, or for other believers. As we learned in Sunday school this morning, we go about this work for the joy that we receive and for the glory of God. Hit up Pastor Jeremiah if you'd like that broken down just a little bit more. In our section of Zechariah, you'll see that Zerubbabel laid the foundation of the house and was promised to complete it in verse 9. In verse 10, we see the plumb line was in his hand. He's at work doing what God has tasked him to do, working through the power of the Spirit, not by his own might nor his own power. In thinking of our own work in carrying out the Great Commission, I've heard the analogy of it being like water skiing. God is the boat pulling. We're the skiers. The job for the skiers is to hold on and stand up. We, tar- we participate, but the primary mo- movement is all the work of God. In John 15, in the context of glorifying God and producing fruit and proving to be his disciples, Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are called to work. It's the right response to what God has done. But the focus should never be on the work, but on Christ. Young's literal translation of that same verse helps us to see the focus of the verse. Isn't really our works, but God. Young's translation says, For of him we are workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God did before prepare, that in them we may walk. So church, walk in those good works. Go about the work of evangelism. And like the church in Acts 2, the Lord will add to the number that are being saved. We as workers are the means that God uses for what he is doing. As James Boyce puts it, God works through us, and so we must do it. If we don't do it, it doesn't happen. But when we do it, and it does happen, it happens because the Lord is doing it. 
So that may sound like a contradiction, but really it's just good biblical theology. So as we prepare to go out and do the work that God has prepared for us this week, be encouraged that it's by his spirit that it will be done. Hear the words of Zechariah's contemporary Haggai as we close. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are with us. That our job is to, to work according to your spirit. God, so empower us. Give us strength this week, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.